Good evening, guys, and welcome to our Bible study here at Calvary Chapel, Birmingham. Tonight, we're going to be continuing our study of John chapter 14, this evening covering verses 7 to 11. But before we get into the text itself, let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time this evening. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love, for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ that you sent your only son to be a living sacrifice for us so that we indeed may know eternal life, forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with you. Tonight, Lord, help us to understand more of what the Lord Jesus Christ had to say to us in the word and help us, Lord, to be challenged and changed by what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, John chapter 14, verses 7 to 11 says as follows. If you had really known me, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe of the work. I believe because of the work you have seen me do. Tonight we're just going to continue through John chapter 14 and we've got to verse 7. Remember where we've been so far. We've been through the first six verses of the upper room discourse starting in John chapter 14 verse 1. And we see initially in this discourse, Jesus comforting his disciples. We then see Jesus comforting his disciples, not only with the command to trust in him, but then specifically to trust in him for a heavenly destination. A destination in eternity with the father in the father's house when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back for his disciples. And we see this constant reassurance, but also this constant teaching of his disciples, revealing new truths uh, to them about what would happen, not only to them personally, but also to all believers in the church age. And then last week, <clears throat> we heard Thomas ask that golden nugget question, where am I going? Where are we going? And how are we going to get there? And then Jesus gives one of the most profound responses in scripture. He says, he is the way, the truth and the life and that no one can come to the Father but through him. As we get to verse 7, it's worth bearing in mind that actually verse 7 is part of Jesus' answer that he's given to Thomas in verse 5. So if we read verses 6 and 7 together in one go, we finally answer the full answer to what Jesus is saying. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So when we read these two verses together, we see really what Jesus is saying. He says he is the way to the father and he is the way exclusively. He is the only way to be with the father in heaven. It isn't enough to be sincere. You have to be sincerely believing that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life. But the uncertainty of Thomas in verse 5 also gives us an insight into Thomas's mindset. Thomas and the other disciples still aren't fully sure 
just who Jesus is. They believe he's the Messiah. They believe he's the son of David. They believe that he will come and establish his kingdom. They believe even that he is the saviour. And therefore they are believers at this point. But they, don't, they haven't really understood that he is God incarnate. That when he goes to the cross in only a few days time, he will conquer sin and death. And they will certainly realise who he is when he rises again from the dead a few days after that. Verse 7 puts verse 6 into the present tense. Jesus is saying he is the way to the Father. He is the only way to the Father. And specifically, knowing him is the same as knowing the Father. But this wasn't the first time that Jesus had said this. He'd said it before, actually to the Pharisees, before the disciples, in John 8, 19. Jesus said, where is your father? Oh, sorry, Jesus didn't say that. <laughs> the disciple, the uh, Pharisees said, where is your father? Jesus answered, since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my father is. If you knew me, you would also know my father. The issue of seeing who Jesus is for the Pharisees and indeed for the disciples was they had to have their mindset and their focus on who Jesus just was. They had to look up rather than around them to see that Jesus was God himself. When we see the compassion of Jesus, we see the compassion of the Father. When we see the love of Jesus, we see the love of the Father. When we see the power of Jesus, we see the power of the Father. When we see the righteous judgments of Jesus, we see the righteous judgments of the Father. We need to get away from this mentality that Jesus is the nice one and that the Father is up in heaven wanting to cast aspersions and judge. Jesus the Father and indeed the Holy Spirit are the same God. We have one God in three distinct persons. Therefore, they have the same character, the same nature. And therefore, the Father is as loving as Jesus is. And Jesus is equally as righteous as the Father is. And we can't divide the Trinity up into these distinct groups because actually... Their characteristics, their nature are one. To see that, to see Jesus as this one that's very nice and loving and isn't going to judge sin is committing a error doctrinally. It's saying that Jesus is something different than he is. So why would we do that? Well, maybe one of the reasons is we don't know Jesus according to what the scripture says. So our encouragement really is to go back to scripture and read the whole counsel of God to really understand who Jesus is. And the words in verse 7 are also really interesting for another reason. Jesus was gently rebuking his disciples for not knowing him, but he was also compassionately reminding them that very soon they would know him in all his fullness. Because in one week's time, less than one week's time, as I mentioned before, Jesus will be risen again from the dead. He would appear to his disciples in his resurrected body. They would realise that death has no hold on Jesus Christ and that he has been resurrected from the dead, defeating death and sin and judgment for them. 
there was no, now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus, the disciples, and everybody who believed in him, because he had defeated the enemy forever. Verse 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Have you ever uh, been promised something or you're looking forward to something, but you just couldn't wait? Um, maybe it's a cheese and potato pie that you love to eat in the evening. Uh, but instead of waiting for the finished product, you go into the fridge mid-afternoon and grab a piece of cheese. <laughs> We've all done that, I'm sure. Um, it's a very human trait. We want to see what we're going to get before we are supposed to get it. Or maybe it's a Christmas or a birthday present. You just couldn't wait for the day, so you opened it early. These are very practical and you know normal examples of this type of behaviour. Philip here, though, has just heard Jesus says, say that they're very soon going to see who Jesus is in all his fullness and therefore see the Father. And he therefore acts in quite a predictable way. You can imagine Philip almost thinking, OK, Jesus, you've said we're going to see him. Show us the Father. <laughs> He's actually saying to Jesus, show us the Father right now. Jesus, uh, Philip was asking Jesus to reveal God the Father to them. And he was kind of walking in the footsteps of the Old Testament prophets in this sense, because it's been a desire of mankind since the beginning of creation to see and indeed walk with God. We see it in Exodus 33, 18 to 23, where Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, look, <clears throat> stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with the hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. Moses is asking the Lord here to reveal his glory. And Moses wasn't disappointed. Indeed, we see countless times in the Old Testament, Moses is with the Lord and he shines afterwards because he's been in the very presence of God. But he couldn't look at the Lord's face. There was a limitation to what had been revealed to Moses. And if he tried to look at the Lord's face, he probably would have ended up like Lot's wife. Because you cannot look at the Lord in your sinful state in all his fullness and live. Isaiah 6, 1-4 gives us a similar indication. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Again, notice what happens. Standing before the Lord's throne, the angels and Isaiah could not look at the Lord in all his fullness. The angels had to cover their feet because they could not in all their fullness see the Lord. And yet Philip 
is standing before the ultimate revelation of the Father. The ultimate revelation of the Father to mankind forever. And he can't even see who he's standing in front of. Hebrews 1, 1-2 shows us that Jesus is the final and ultimate revelation of God himself. Long ago, God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Philip is standing before Jesus Christ. He's asking to see the father, but he doesn't even realise he's standing before the ultimate revelation of the father. This is almost bizarre. The only way Philip could not have seen who he was standing before was that Jesus had veiled his glory. He had chosen to accept in some senses humanity and the limitations of being human whilst he was on earth. Because if he hadn't done that, Philip would have been on the floor, bowing down, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Jesus Christ, because there is no other way that a man can stand before the full revelation of who Jesus is and not do that. Indeed, at Jesus' arrest, as we see later in John, the soldiers try and get him and they say, who, you know, who is Jesus Christ? And Jesus says, I am. And they bow down before him because he reveals for a split second just who he is. Philippians 2, 6 to 8. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. The reason Philip couldn't see exactly who Jesus was at this point is because Jesus had humbled himself. Jesus had taken on the position of a slave, had been born as a human being, but only a few days later, Philip would realise who Jesus was. He would see Jesus resurrected from the dead in his glorified body. Philip's desire would be met after the resurrection. Verse 9, Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? At first glance, it looks like Jesus is repeating himself for emphasis, doesn't it? It looks like Jesus is saying the same thing again. But if you look at verse 7 carefully, it talks about knowing the Father. And then in verse 9, it talks about knowing the Father being linked with seeing the Father. Philip had seen Jesus for three years. He'd seen the final revelation of the Father for three years, but he still didn't know in all his, in all the fullness of what Jesus, who he was, who the Father's revelation was. Philip was still spiritually blinded in some senses to who Christ was, who Christ was standing before him at this point. Such spiritual blindness was going to be overcome following the resurrection when Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit into them. And we've seen this a few times now in John 20. After the resurrection, Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit into the disciples. And at that point, they were born again and sealed with the Holy Spirit. But there are many people today who are spiritually blind, who see God's goodness, God's kindness, God's mercy, 
either in their own lives or the lives of people who are believers in Jesus Christ, but they still don't come to know him for themselves. Maybe you've shared with some colleagues at work or some friends or even some family members who don't know Jesus about how Jesus has been good to you, about how Jesus has interceded for you, has provided for you, has forgiven your sin. Maybe they've seen with their own eyes the impact that Jesus has had on your life. Do they fall on their knees and repent? Or do they just go, that's nice for you, you've got faith. That's nice for you, I can see the blessings of having Jesus, but I don't want him, thanks very much. What is the response that you see when you share Jesus with others, particularly in light of something that Jesus has done for you? You see, such a response to the goodness of God, to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ is, and it shows us, spiritual blindness is a problem that all of mankind faces. But spiritual blindness isn't just a problem for non-believers. It's a problem equally for believers. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3 gives us an insight into how believers can behave just like unbelievers. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous for one another and quarrel with one another. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sin nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? You see, it is equally possible for believers in Jesus Christ to behave just like the world. For born again people to live in their flesh, to be in downright rebellion against God, to be in active and ongoing sin in their lives, and to be spiritually blinded to spiritual matters, to not understand to not take in spiritual material because they're so filled with the world that they haven't got appetite or even care particularly about what the Lord is telling them. It's not a good place to be. Nowhere in scripture tells you this is a good place to be. And indeed, we know the Lord will discipline his children if they continue to walk in disobedience because he loves his children. The father wants us to grow in him and he won't let us continue in this place. But we know it's possible. And we know that there are Christians out there that do this. And if they do this, they may not see God's mercy, God's goodness. They may not see God's intervention. They may just think it's a coincidence. They may just think God's oh, nice for you. They don't give glory to God where glory to God is deserved. You see, Jesus' words here are a direct challenge to us as believers. We need to share the gospel with those that don't know Jesus, that those that are spiritually blinded. But we also need to throw off the weight and the snares of our own sins and our own lives that so easily beset us, that weigh us down, that stop us walking the race that Jesus called us to walk. We've got to take our eyes off the surroundings. We've got to take our eyes off our own egg nest, our own comforts, our own possessions, our own flesh, and start putting our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop thinking about the horizontal until the vertical 
is certain, until the vertical is intimate, until you are having that intimate and living relationship with the Father, always put God first and everything else will sort itself out. Try and sort everything else out without God and it will all fall apart. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight, not some weights, not the ones I don't like, but the ones I like, I'll keep them there. Strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. That's come up a few times this year so far in, in the Bible studies or in the teaching from Sunday mornings. I think we really need to hear that and we really need to ask the Lord, Lord, show me. Show me where I'm weighed down. Show me where my decisions and my actions blind me to what you'd have for me. Help me, Lord, to repent and to change my mind and to change my direction to focus on you this year. And then verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Jesus' words here to Philip in the Greek are actually in plural. So when Jesus says you, he's actually talking to the entire disciples at this point. Don't you, all of you, believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus here is reminding them again of John 8, 28 to 30, where he, Jesus at, at this point is talking to a crowd in the temple and many people believed in him at this point when Jesus said this. So the verses from John 8, 28 to 30. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the father taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. Then many who heard him say these things believed in him. Same word as in John 14, verse 10. What do we observe when we take John 14 and John 8 together about the relationship between the father and the son? Well, it's really quite simple. Jesus and the father are one. They are in each other. On the map, if you were to map out um, the Lord, <laughs> you were to map it out and you were able to comprehend ge geography, they would be on the, in the same coordinates on the map. Jesus and the Father are one. But they, man they are different persons. And John doesn't make an apology here for teaching this explicitly. Yes, the father and the son are one, but they've got two separate names, father and son. And this writing was guided by the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. And it is the Gospel of John, I think, that more than anywhere else that does really explicitly teach that God is one, yet in three distinct persons. But what do we do in light of that? Well, we don't want to listen to people who say that Jesus isn't God. Because saying that Jesus isn't God is a false doctrine. And many cults and many other religions will tell you that Jesus isn't God. Don't listen. Trust the scriptures. 
Don't listen to people who say that Jesus isn't a distinct person from God, teaching that the Father, the Son, the Spirit are one person. Because that is equally wrong and that is found in some cults. Equally, don't listen to people who say that Jesus is a God and that the Father is a God. Because again, it's not in line with scripture. I make no apologies this evening for categorically stating that Jesus Christ is God, that he is distinct from the Father in his personhood. We worship one God, not three gods. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what we believe. This is critical to understand. Now, we can't understand it in all its fullness. There are certain things that are a mystery. And if we were, try if we were trying to put this all together in our heads and you know, logically work this all out, it would be really tricky. In fact, impossible. But we believe what the Bible says because it is God's word. And sometimes we've just got to believe God's word and not try and work it out for ourselves in every single respect. Verse 11, just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. I love this verse. Jesus has just been telling the disciples different truths about himself. He's been gently reminding the disciples of who he is and gently telling them, don't you believe already? But Jesus at this point shows great compassion. He knows his disciples are struggling to understand the complexity, perhaps, of the Trinity. They're struggling to get that, their mind around the fact he was soon leaving them. But I find that human brains can't really work everything out that God has told us. We really can't fully categorise, comprehend and graph out every single detail because our minds are finite and God's mind is infinite. Isaiah 55, 8 to 9. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You may have a boggled mind this evening. You may think, what on earth is he talking about? You may be sharing in what the disciples were thinking when Jesus was talking this evening. What does Jesus say? He says, believe I and the Father are one and believe because of the works you have seen me do. He doesn't say you have to explain the Trinity to somebody in a cult who doesn't believe in the Trinity. He doesn't say you have to use fancy analogies and terminology to describe the Trinity. He says, believe, believe what I have said Believe what I have revealed and believe in the light of what I've done. That's all you need to do this evening. Believe what Jesus is saying and believe if you're struggling to believe, believe because of what I've done. It's as simple as that. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead in front of the disciples. He'd raised countless people or cured countless people of their sicknesses in front of the disciples. He'd performed the work of creation by turning water into wine in front of these disciples. And he um, told a Samaritan woman all about her life in great detail without even meeting her. Four examples we've covered in the Gospel of John. The list continues and goes on in great depth. But these are works that only God could do. Only God 
could create. Only God could heal without medicine. Only God could reveal the secrets of the heart without <clears throat> knowing this person. Jesus is saying to these disciples this evening, put your trust, put your faith in me and what I have done and I will take care of you. And the disciples weren't the only ones, by the way, who struggled with this teaching. John the Baptist had also come to a moment of confusion. And in Matthew 11, 2 to 6, Jesus gives us the same response he gave to the disciples here to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and you have seen. The works that God has done, by the way. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured the deaf here, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. Jesus is saying to somebody this evening, he's saying to the disciples in the scripture, if you don't quite get it, if you're still struggling with doubt, just look at me, look at what I have done and believe. Don't worry about the detail. He can reveal that later, and indeed he did reveal that later to the disciples following the resurrection. Just believe in what I have said. Believe in what I have said about myself, about who my relationship with the Father is, and believe in what I can do for you to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you of all righteousness, to, to empower you to walk day by day in my strength. Believe it and walk in it. And have confidence in what I am saying. The question that we've been asked this evening as I wrap up is, are we asked to have blind faith? Are we asked to say, I'll just believe that everything will be all right in the end? No, we're not. We're called to have faith in Jesus Christ, the one who sustains all things, the one who created all things, the one who took our sin and was nailed to a cross for us so that we may know eternal life, so that we may know the Father and have a relationship with him. If you're struggling tonight, I pray that you would put your trust and you would turn your focus to Jesus Christ. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, the message is the same. Trust in Jesus, trust in his word, trust in what he has done and walk confidently in the light of it this evening. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this revelation from your word. Help us, Lord, to see our need. Help us, Lord, to see our doubts. Help us, Lord, to see the weights that so easily weigh us down. And help us, like Mary, to come before your feet, just to talk to you, Lord, to confess our sin and to humbly say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? To abide in you to abide in your truth and then to walk confidently in the light of it. Help us, Lord, as we continue through John chapter 14 to further understand all these truths. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night. Take care.